Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. Thanks for joining us this week. This week on the Nerdcast, we will talk about Democrats in California and Washington, for that matter, breathing a sigh of relief after the big primary night on Tuesday. Plus, we will break down what you need to know about President Donald Trump's summit next week with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin. We're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, June 7th, so it is all up to date as of then, even the foreign policy section. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. We have in the studio Politico senior editor Charlie Matassian. Charlie, good to see you. Hi, Scott. We have campaign reporter Elena Schneider, quickly becoming a Nerdcast regular. Thanks for having me again. And all the way from California, David Siders, senior reporter and co-author of California Playbook. David is on the line. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. And uh, David, I understand you're joining us from home. Will your dog be joining us on the line as well? Uh, The dog does seem to be joining us a bit. All right. All right. Looking forward to it. (laughs) Time for our first data point. That's two, as in top two. California has a weird primary system. It's in use in a few states, as we talked about last week. But instead of having each party uh, pick their nominees, they put everyone on the ballot. Everyone can vote. And the top two vote getters, regardless of party, uh, advance from those California primaries. And so that is that was what was on tap this week. Uh, but because of that, Elena, there were a lot of worries heading into it about what this might mean in terms of Democrats' efforts to take back the House in November. That's right. There was a lot of concern that Democrats would wake up on June 6th and they wouldn't have anyone to vote for in a handful of, uh, of districts, in particular the three in Orange County that we were particularly focused on to open seats to replace Daryl Issa and Ed Royce, and then also Dana Rohrabacher, who's sort of cratering in his popularity, had a stiff challenge from a Republican there. And all three of them came out with Democrats on the ballot. So that's why Democrats can now sort of, as you say, breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that they've at least got candidates on the ballot. There was, uh, interestingly enough, though, a real scare in California's 10th district where all of a sudden out of left field, another Republican who had raised very little to no money, uh, but was still a well-known sort of local local elected official out there, came pretty close in in, in uh in nearly locking out Democrats there, but uh, it looks like Josh Harder is going to be able to hold on to that slot against Jeff Denham. And again, you know, these are all districts that you just mentioned where uh, Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump in 2016, and so you know it clearly shows the uh, the opportunity there. Doesn't you know? None of these races are over yet, right? They still have to go to November. Democrats still have to beat Republicans head to head, but uh, a, a good first step that they're going to get that opportunity. Um, David, can you can you uh, talk us through the the backstory a little bit on on some of these races of just uh, you know the the process by which uh, Democrats spent a lot of money and and kind of ended up uh, just uh, eking eking through some of these primaries with nominees? 
Yeah, I mean, what Elena says about those three districts is exactly right. And I think what's so interesting is that, you know, in January, when Ed Royce and uh, Daryl Issa announced their retirements, you had all these activists you know, really cheering that they, they chased these Republicans from the districts. And I think that the party realized really quickly that without a one strong incumbent Republican, the likelihood of a couple of Republicans breaking through in the top two was was pretty high. So there was a, a lot of concern. Um, so, yeah, the effort, you know, you saw calls um, from House members and Democratic leaders to candidates to pressure them to get out of the race. And then a lot of spending, not only to boost the Democrats in those districts, but to pull down the Republicans. And I think maybe one of the more cynical plays was uh, in ICE's district, where Rocky Chavez, a really moderate Republican who Democrats feared would make it to the November ballot, they spent a lot of money pulling him down uh, by advertising a- against votes that he'd taken with Democrats in the California State Assembly. Oh, that's a really interesting twist. You know, he his vote was necessary. They needed his vote to get cap and trade, you know, a major part of California's environmental agenda through the through the legislature, and he did it. And how did he get repaid? You know, Democrats used it to kneecap him with Republican primary voters. <laughs> That's exactly what they did. They went. They advertised on Fox News. Wow. And I think another element to this is that they um, what's so fascinating about California, particularly in Orange County, where there hasn't been a lot of infrastructure, there haven't been a lot of candidates with a lot of success there. There's not much of a bench. So all of these candidates who flooded into these districts, who got calls, as David said, from members of Congress, from Eric Bauman, the California Democratic Party chairman, who were urging them to to be realistic about their chances and uh, and to maybe consider other offices, try and find other places for them. But as Bauman and others made the point to me, none of these people came up in the party. They have no sort of, you know, allegiance necessarily to any sort of party official telling them what to do. And as even Dr. Tran, one of the one of the four candidates who was running in the open seat in California's 39th district, told us was that she, you know, everyone kept urging her to think about her long term political career. And she says, I don't have a long term political career. This is it. This is the first and only thing that I'm thinking about doing. And now you're telling me to get out of it. I have no reason to get out of it. So that was also a major uh, 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 obstacle that they came up against in that not only when they were trying to convince people to get out, they didn't really have much to use against them to try and convince them to get out. That's a really good point. David, one other interesting facet about this all-party top two primary situation in California is that we get a little bit more so than in other states. We get a little bit of a general election preview. Um, and in, in terms of one of the things I thought was most interesting is that if you look at these, uh, th- there's a half dozen uh, of these Democratic target districts, the Republican-held districts in California, where uh, Republicans are hovering now, uh, the counting is still continuing, but they're hovering right around 52 or 53% of the vote uh, in, in terms of the aggregate Republican vote in the primary. And you know, based on what we've seen in past years in California, where that declines a little bit in November, that puts them, it's right in the, that kind of toss-up tipping point zone of could win, could lose. It's very interesting how all the results just ended up kind of centered around this like true toss-up little uh, place in terms of the all-party primary. Yeah, and I think that, you know, as the votes trickle in in California, you would only expect the Democratic uh, numbers to you know edge up just a little bit, uh, as, as they typically do on a election day counts. These are districts that are truly concerning for Republicans and were, you know, two years ago and even before that. I think what what's interesting is that at least in one of these districts in the 
ISA district, the Democrats really got the Republican they want with Diane Harkey, who's a, a much more conservative uh, Republican than Rocky Chavez, who they who they spent money to to knock down. Uh, so they clearly have a pickup opportunity there. And then Rohrbacher, you know, I'm, I think that's a harder district to get, despite the controversy surrounding Rohrbacher, but they're clearly excited about that one and the open seat uh, that they have with Ed Royce. Although the Republican there, Young Kim, uh, does appeal to a lot of the demographic in in that Orange County district. Um, so as you said, we're still waiting for calls in some of these races, but uh, Democrats are going through uh, in, in all of them. There's still a question about which Democrats uh, could make it through in the 48th district in particular. It looks like things could go back and forth uh, for a while between Harley Ruda and Hans Kirstead, the two Democrats who are kind of trading second and third place right now with each update. So Charlie, big picture here. Um, does a Democratic takeover of the House seem more likely than after, uh, you know, we, we uh, kind of kick things off on Tuesday night? I think Democrats remain on a trajectory uh, that can win the House right now. I mean, obviously, we, you know, we don't want to say they're going to take the House, uh, but they're on a trajectory. And that's important because – and the reason I, I highlight that is we now know that uh, as a result of California – California was pivotal in, in a way that it hasn't been before. It was pivotal to Democratic hopes of taking back – the uh, House, and now because they're in, because Democrats are in play in all these districts and didn't get locked out, they can still. There's still a path. Had they not succeeded in all these races, uh, they wouldn't have uh, a path. And I and I think that's that's the most important takeaway that that I had out of uh, Tuesday. But the other thing is too is the continued march of women. Uh, you see this particularly in Democratic primaries where women are women candidates are really thriving. It was a decent decent evening for uh, for Republican women in that uh, Christy Nome won the Republican nomination for governor in uh, South Dakota. You saw Kay Ivey, the governor of uh, Alabama, won, uh, won her nomination. She had a challenge. You saw Kim Reynolds in Iowa. She uh, won her renomination. So it was a decent night for them. And then the, the last thing that I think the last big takeaway that I had was uh, the – this isn't new, but uh, I, I saw. I thought it was especially fascinating on Tuesday, which was the extent of Donald Trump's total and absolute dominion over the Republican Party. And the reason I bring that up is the Martha Roby race. Roby being a, a conservative young congresswoman in Alabama, whose whose sole uh, sin was to criticize Donald Trump in the uh, aftermath of the Access Hollywood remarks. All she said was uh, that she couldn't vote for him because of that behavior, and she has been paying the price ever since. She uh, actually has been falling all over herself to get in the White House's good graces, but the, the unusual thing about Donald Trump is that he remembers everyone that cut him off after Access Hollywood, and while he hasn't been public about Martha Roby, uh, certainly her constituents in that district have been very upset that and feel that she is some sort of never trumper or some sort of Republican squish only because of that one remark. They've pretty much thrown her out the window. And it's amazing that a, a woman who was once a young up and coming conservative star could only win 39% in that district. It's a heavily Republican district. It's a, it's a district where Trump was popular. I think he won over 60%. But still, this is somebody who's been in office since 2010 won 39% in a Republican primary, which kicks her to a runoff. And and that runoff, Elena, is going to uh, pose an interesting question to, to Republican voters in, in Alabama, right? Yeah. Who do you who do you dislike more? Somebody who voted for Nancy Pelosi or someone who said they weren't going to support Donald Trump? So she so Roby supporters would say that she drew the best hand in getting former Congressman Bobby Bright as her opponent. 
who was the Democrat she beat. Exactly. <laughs> who was once a Democrat in 2000 and, in 2010 when he was running for re-election and he lost. And uh, and I think that for them, this is the best contrast they could possibly draw. And in fact, she's already started to do, to do that in her first campaign ad. She talks about Nancy Pelosi and how Nancy Pelosi doesn't isn't doing enough for the border wall. So I think she's already... I, I think there was an anticipation within her team that this might be the setup that, that would come, and therefore she's already laid the groundwork for how they're going to uh, attack him. That's such a good point. There were also ads where she was talking about Nancy Pelosi standing against the Republican tax uh, law. I, I think you're absolutely right that they were kind of setting things up to take a big swing at Bobby Bright uh, as, as a Pelosi I think they supporter. had a feeling that she wasn't going to be able to walk out of this without a runoff. And so that they've, they've set, them up, them, set themselves up nicely to, to, uh, to move forward. David, uh, apart from the, uh, the the House races that we just talked about in California, what else caught your eye on, on primary night on Tuesday? Oh, I don't know. I think to, I always like to look at primaries at, at the people that we won't hear from again and, and what they mean. I, I think the Bernie Sanders so and candidates who, <laughs> well, you get to talk about the people who advance, uh, you know, for another few months. But I, I think the Bernie Sanders endorsed candidates who flamed out. That was interesting. Uh, Pete D'Alessandro in, in Iowa and Kathy Glass in there. And then uh, Peter Jacob in New Jersey. So that's just we kind of see continuing struggles, I guess, among among these candidates in the Bernie Sanders wing, in addition to the Bernie Sanders wing's own struggles. So that that's interesting, not only for what it means for for them, but what it means for Bernie Sanders if he runs again in, in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I've always wondered with the the thing that gets overlooked about Sanders and Charlie, we were talking about this on primary night, is that um, one of the factors in Sanders' success, and it was kind of it was this feedback loop uh, because he was growing more popular and his email list was getting bigger and, and it kept, but was Sanders raised a ton of money. He raised a ton of money and he spent a lot of that money on advertising, on TV and digital and, and you know, going all over the place and having these big rallies. And that played a big role in him uh, becoming and maintaining his popularity. Whereas you get Pete D'Alessandro, who you just mentioned, David, uh, his his former campaign aide in Iowa, who had Sanders' endorsement. Sanders appeared in TV ads for him. But D'Alessandro and Sanders raised money for him. But D'Alessandro didn't have that much money. He could barely afford to put that TV ad with Bernie Sanders in it on the airwaves. And and so I just feel like that's, that's a factor that... Um, Bernie Sanders has not been able to transfer down to some of his acolytes into other races. Some of them have have had funds, but but a lot of them haven't. And that's I think that's that's one of the kind of big factors that's made them continue to be underdogs, uh, despite that you know having having cornered some of that energy within the party. Do I get any uh, songbirds and dog barking track lead down? <laughs> like 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 ciders before I answer this? Um, no, I mean I, I think it, you you make a really important point, Scott, about uh, the Bernie Sanders candidates, which it's often overlooked how Bernie Sanders minted money in his 2016 campaign. And when you mint money like that through the small donor juggernaut that he built up, that enables you to do lots of different things. And as candidates, you you know, especially in crowded primaries, you need cash to get your message out, to run ads, to, to you know, build, build a field organization for all those things. And many of these uh, Sanders-endorsed candidates or Sanders-oriented candidates uh, that have uh, percolated up from the grassroots, they just don't have those resources that enabled Bernie to really catch fire. Yeah, and it's one of those things, you know, money isn't everything, but it's not nothing, right? It's the, and that, that's all, that's always the pushback. It's like, oh, you know, you don't need big money. And, and, but I, I don't think anyone's really arguing that, but you have to have enough m- money to 
to be viable. Basically. Right, and it, it drives progressives crazy, the idea that Democrats uh, or establishment Democrats and the DCCC put such stock in the fact that, you know, they won't even look at you twice if you can't raise money. I mean, what is it the first question they ask you when you when you tell the DCCC that you're interested in running? They want to know how much you can raise, uh, how many people you know that will uh, give you $1,000 or however much. So they're always obsessed with money. And, and, and I think progressives are right in criticizing that sort of outlook. But at the same time, your point is exactly valid. Like you can't get anywhere without sort of a, a, a baseline of, of cash that gets you into the game. Well, I just, I mean, I would just add that too. I mean, part of it is that they they grumble and complain about big money and and dark money getting spent in these in in these races. And you know, Pete D'Alessandro was saying to me that you know he wouldn't want outside money to come in and help him because he doesn't believe fundamentally that they should be a part of the system. Well, then you don't get to be a part of the system if you're not going to play the game. There's an element of having to at least in some ways, you know, raise money and acknowledge that that's going to be an element of your race if you're actually going to succeed. And you can't succeed if you're not going to have a seat at the table. One other thing I want to mention about this is that also, you know, there isn't an enormous ideological divide between the quote-unquote Bernie Sanders candidates and some of the other candidates in some of these races, right? I mean, I'm thinking about a bunch of the districts in California where um, there, there just really wasn't a lot divide. You know, there wasn't a clear ideological divide either that, you know, maybe he's won that fight a little bit uh, in terms of kind of I think Yeah, I think platform-wise, he's definitely been able to move Democrats to the left, that he's been able to make Medicare for All, especially in places like California, uh, not only uh, something that people talk about, that, but something that people expect their candidates to support, that overall people were backing that, our $15 minimum wage. Those are the sorts of things that there wasn't a lot of daylight in those in those places, and maybe that's how he's going to manifest his message more than just necessarily candidates. That he's been able to move the party to the left. All right, so that's our June fifth wrap up. Uh, as you know, we're in the middle of primary season here. There's going to be another one next week. Uh, keep an eye out on Tuesday night for our results at Politico.com, and we also have a, a live chat going uh, each week featuring. Uh, all, a lot of the people that you you listen to on the Nerdcast. But uh, coming up next week, it's a lot quieter. We've got five states voting, fewer marquee races. There's a few battleground districts. There's some thought that uh, Congressman Mark Sanford, the Republican in South Carolina, could face a tough primary challenge. Um, but Elena, there is one question I want to ask you. Congresswoman Barbara Comstock in Northern Virginia could make an argument that that's one of the most interesting House races in, in America as as people focus on the House in 2018 as a Republican in the Clinton district. And the the prime, the Democratic primary there has gotten pretty weird and interesting. But Elena, would, would you say she's she's among the most enda- endangered incumbents uh, on the map? I think Barbara Comstock is certainly, by the numbers, the most endangered Republican. Uh, in 2017, the Virginia legislative races, nearly, I think all of them, or if not nearly all of the uh, state senators and state legislators underneath her that overlap with her congressional district lost and all turned blue. So if that's not uh, an indication, I think that, you know, just even the basics of, of the outlines of way the way her district has run in the past has, has also shown that, you know, that this is super vulnerable. But... Barbara Comstock is an incredibly good member of Congress. She is works really hard and is very in touch with and in tune with her district. So she's one of those and is battle tested, somebody who's had tough races in the past. So She's as well positioned as one can be to hold on to an incredibly tough district. And the thing that will help her do that is a really nasty primary. And it's not necessarily been uh, nasty and personal, but it's been 
complicated, chaotic, tons of money have been spent, a lot of people's resources have been drained in the process to get through this primary. And we've got four or five candidates who are all spending tons of money, who are uh, sort of poking at each other, pulling each other to the left, and and that's going to yield a candidate that's going to be pretty bruised, a little, um, not have as much money in the bank. And that's Barbara Comstock's perfect situation. All right, we'll leave it there. We'll, we'll uh, please, again, tune in uh, next Tuesday as we see what comes out of that district and a bunch of others around the country. Um, one last thing before we go out, Elena, I think you have something to say to the people of South Dakota. Um, it's true. I owe the people of South Dakota a huge apology. We have a great number of listeners there from all uh, all across the state. And I just got to say, I'm really sorry. I, I've been to the Badlands and I really enjoyed it and I'd love to come back again. Please don't keep me out. <laughs> And, of course, this apology is necessary because on last week's Nerdcast, Elena spoke ill of the people of South Dakota and how many listeners how many listeners we might have from there. But uh, as we, we looked up the numbers and got some emails, and it turns out our audience is huge in it's South true. Dakota. We have listeners in Rapid City, Sioux Falls, Hot Springs, Watertown. <laughs> I'm learning about all kinds of different cities in South Dakota right now. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it off there. David, thank you so much for joining us on the phone. Thank you. Elena, thanks for being here again. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, Charlie, I know you're going to be sticking around for the next segment. So no no thank you to you. I don't think I've ever met a non-super nice South Dakota. I do really remember going to the Corn Palace in South I Dakota. I wish I went there. <laughs> if you have a car, you have car insurance. If you have a home, you have home insurance. If you're alive... Shouldn't you have life insurance? Four out of ten people don't have life insurance at all. And it's not their fault. It's life insurance's fault. Shopping for life insurance is confusing and it takes forever. So Policy Genius made it easy. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online. In just five minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. And when you compare quotes, you save money. It's that simple. In fact, Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and placed over $20 billion in coverage. And they don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, and health insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. If you've been putting off getting life insurance, don't put it off any longer. It's never been easier to buy, and rates are at a 20-year low. PolicyGenius.com, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. On to our next data point, which is five. That is five days to go until the planned summit between President Trump and the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un in Singapore. Politico White House reporter Eliana Johnson will be in Singapore for that meeting. But before that, she is here with the Nerdcast. Hi, Eliana. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for joining us. You're heading over on Air Force One. I am heading over on Air Force One as co-pooler, let you know how the food is when I get back. If you have me back, I can do a food review for you all. All right. There we go. A dining review. All right. So besides besides the dining, what sort of expectations do you have for this summit? Or, or maybe we should start with what sort of expectations has the White House set for this summit? We're not really clear, I think, what they hope to get out of this summit. Um, 
initially, I think going into or when the president first agreed sort of on a whim in March, there was a lot of talk of complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and the president uh, then sort of hastily pulled out of the summit when there was some saber rattling on the part of the North Koreans who talked about uh, nuking the U.S. and called Mike Pence a political dummy. Uh, also, a lot of invective directed at National Security Advisor John Bolton. Um, but they've uh, they've gone back and forth between talking about denuclearization of the peninsula and being clear that the North Koreans need to be at least open to that. And also, then we've heard Trump saying, well, this uh, might just be a meet and greet and there may have to be several more meetings, one, two, three, may- maybe more, maybe it won't happen at all. And so I think at this point, we're not totally clear what this meeting is going to be uh, and and what the substance is that's going to be discussed. It, it struck me, and maybe this is just kind of my outside interpretation of this, and there was actually a lot more going on, but it struck me that the the swift cancellation and then re-booking of, of the summit um, served to to kind of dial back expectations for it, basically, the, that we went from t- talking about, as you said, like complete denuclearization and other things to, to more of this like meet and greet idea that Trump himself has pushed, right? Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think in the lead up to the cancellation, um, there was a lot of frustration both on the part of President Trump and the North Koreans that there was talk of this Libyan model um, of what the U.S. expected to get out of it. So National Security Advisor John Bolton had said um, that he, he was trying to set expectations by using this Libyan model whereby the Bush administration in 2003 had uh, Libya completely and voluntarily give up their nuclear weapons. But I think the North Koreans heard something different uh, because in 2011, of course, um, after giving up their nuclear weapons, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, the uh, Libyan strongman, was overthrown by um, the Libyans and they like dragged him out of a drainage pipe and murdered him. And so I I think um, while Bolton may have been on firm ground talking about using that as a model, it was a gaffe in a certain way in that it um, it left a lot open to interpretation. The North Koreans were very mad and they uh, issued several statements mentioning Bolton by name. Um, And Trump was angry, I think not at the substance. He would have been fine had the North Koreans not been angry, but but Trump got very angry because the North Koreans reacted angrily and uh, imperiled the summit that he really wanted to happen. So he told several people that he was really angry at Bolton for making this stupid remark. And um, and that's what resulted in, I think, the dialing back of expectations, the issuance of that letter, which I think Trump sort of to jab Bolton actually dictated the cancellation letter to him, turned him into sort of a, a secretary. And so he dictated the letter to Bolton. He made Bolton read it back to him. Um, That detail is in uh, my piece today on Politico. And what I didn't include is that apparently after he he dictated the letter, had Bolton read it back to him, he said, you know, commented on what a beautiful letter it was and how great it was, which is, I mean, we would expect nothing less from Trump. But um, he did that, I think, to sort of rattle the North Koreans. And it was a Trumpian thing that sort of worked because – um, American officials were saying that as they had tried to plan this summit, they had essentially been ghosted by the North Koreans. They hadn't showed up um, either in Singapore, 
um, or on the phones when American officials had tried to reach them. But they did come back to the negotiating table after Trump issued this letter. And uh, now the summit is on. But again, like not clear exactly if we're going for a Libya model here or if Trump and Kim are just going to meet in person for the first time and exchange pleasantries. Interesting. I want to uh, bring up a story that our colleague uh, Brian Bender wrote uh, recently titled the, the Weirdness of Dealing with North Korean Officials. And I'll just read the first paragraph here. Expect lies. Do your homework because they will have. Choose your words very carefully and have Job-like patience. Oh, and remember that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un considers himself a supreme being. Uh, Charlie, <laughs> um, this this list of suggestions does not sound like one that, that overlaps very much with Donald Trump's personality. Well, I was actually struck by the parallels in a lot of ways. I mean, he'll be familiar with some of the uh, tactics of, of dissembling. Uh, I think he has a very <laughs> high opinion of himself, maybe not uh, as a, as a uh, godlike figure, but probably something close. And what, what about choosing your words very carefully? That's uh, a... Again, uh, not... Walton proved that you've got to choose your words carefully or they might ghost you or, or <laughs> issue threats of nuclear war. But that's something that Trump doesn't do. He doesn't choose his words carefully. I mean, I think it's revealing this week that White House aides have felt the need to reassure the nation that the president is indeed preparing uh, for this historic summit with uh, profound regional and global implications. I mean, you typically don't have to do that with a president. It's, it's expected that you're the president. You'll be prepared. And so I, I found uh, Kellyanne Conway's remarks a little bit disturbing because she was trying so hard to reassure all the, the graybeards and foreign policy uh, hands who are out there uh, fearing that uh, the president's going to, going to be played, trying to reassure Americans that the president will be prepped for this. You know, the more she talked, the more it occurred to me uh, how disturbing it is, the, the perception out there that he won't be prepared. Eliana, what else did you learn about uh, the preparations to the extent that they're happening, uh, both for, for President Trump and for his advisors? I'm not sure I would call them preparations, really, but I think that the, the summit... Um, the negotiations are essentially being driven by the president and with a, with a heavy uh, dose of guidance from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who the president does listen to, does have a good relationship with, isn't frustrated by in the way that he's been frustrated by Bolton. And Pompeo has made two trips to Pyongyang already, has met with Kim personally. And so I think the president really is looking to Pompeo as a sort of rudder, a guide in these negotiations. And he's the person to listen to and watch. He has testified on the Hill and he did leave himself a lot of room um, in response to questions from lawmakers. He said, um, you know, a couple of times, I don't want to answer that question. I want to leave room for negotiations about certain things. It's interesting because the Democrats were really pushing him to say uh, nothing's acceptable to us except for a complete denuclearization and defanging of this regime. They were taking the position usually that Republicans would take. But Pompeo really did want to leave himself room um, for negotiations. I think he's really um, in the passenger seat, I was going to say the driver's seat, but Trump clearly is driving this. But I think Pompeo is playing an important role as well. That's a meteoric rise to a position, you know, Secretary of State where he's dealing with this in, you know, in one of the front seats, at least, as you said, to be dealing with these issues from, I mean, he was a backbench congressman. And and before that, you know, he, he, he was, he's a veteran, but he, uh, you know, he, he worked in, in business. He did, he worked for affiliates or, or um, subsidiaries of the Coke uh, Coke Industries, right? Um, he's, he's not someone who's been steeped for decades in diplomacy. 
That's true. Um, he's not like a foreign policy veteran, but in in writing about Pompeo, I um, I have tried to draw out that he has exactly the kind of background and resume that that appeals to Trump. Um, in that he's a veteran, uh, he's a West Point graduate, and he's a graduate of Harvard Law School. So he sort of combines all these things that Trump uh, really likes, which is uh, the military, the Ivy League, and um, you know he's he, he's somebody Trump can brag about. Um, so, and he's also managed to hit it off with Trump. When he was uh, director of the CIA, he did the daily intelligence briefings in person with Trump. And I think something that uh, Trump, that he figured out about Trump is that he, he's able to brief him on topics succinctly without sort of talking down to him. So I think um, and Trump, you know, for all of his foibles, uh, he does sense when people have contempt for him or are talking down to him. I think that's why he didn't gel with Rex Tillerson. And that's something Pompeo has managed to avoid. But the, th- the thing that strikes me about the Trump-Kim summit, which is like a, maybe a subject for another time, but that it really may be um, it may be the, a meeting between – there's some a lot of things that are unprecedented about it, but it may be a meeting between like the two most dishonest leaders in world history. And so just the way these guys are going to talk to each other and deal with each other will be fascinating, I think, to see develop. Like both these guys are very skilled uh, liars. And I, I would say I, I'm more along the lines of uh, Eliana's thinking on, on this. I find Pompeo as something of a reassuring character in, the, in this drama, even though, yes, he was a backbencher uh, in the House. But when you look at his background, to be clear, I'm not saying he's not capable just because he was he was a backbencher. I'm just saying, you know, it's he we, we've come a long way. <laughs> right. And you also hate Kansan. So, uh <laughs> No, but I mean, I, I find it reassuring within the context of that administration and some of the characters in it uh, that don't inspire a lot of confidence. I, I think to me, he has a unified theory of America's role in the world. I think he has a vision. He has Trump's ear. Uh, and so for those reasons, um, you know, I, I feel a little more confident with his hand uh, on the steering wheel. I mean, he's shown some success in dealing with the North Koreans, which is interesting and which uh, I think we've seen. There's a very short list of people right, who can say exactly. that. Eliana, last last thing, I think, before before we uh, head out here, just, you know, if you if you kind of fast forward to a week or two from now, like what what are what are you expecting to have, to have learned from from this trip in Singapore? What are a few things that you you just think, you know, we ought to be keeping an eye out for that that, that could be happening? I am watching Bolton. You know, he um, he just started the job, uh, you know, alongside Pompeo. I think Pompeo is getting along with Trump. Bolton, it's a little less clear. So I'll be watching his role. He was kept out of this meeting last Friday with the uh, senior North Korean official who came to talk to the president and deliver that letter that looked like a really cute clutch The giant bag. novelty. Yeah. Quality yeah. yeah. stationery. Um, so I, um, I'll sort of be keeping my eye on Bolton, but also um, – It'll be interesting to see if there's any more clarity as to um, what the deliverables are, you know, what they want to get out of this, whether there are going to be additional meetings or whether um, whether this whole thing blows up. And we will keep an eye out for that. Eliana, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck on, on the trip. Thanks. See you guys on the flip side. Charlie, thank you as always for being here. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. As promised, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan for the credits this week. Chantel Preston of Canterbury is going to help us out. Chantel, take it away. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez with production help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer and their illustrators, Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. 
It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Chantel. Listeners, we found Chantel because she emailed in to say she was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, let us know. Please shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. That's all for us. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week. Thank <laughs> you.